Um, we're going to be into ch uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 21. Um, so can I have you all stand with me? And after I um, uh, read the word of God, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to ask you to respond. Thanks be to God. And simply is an acknowledgement on our part that this is the word of God spoken by the holy God to us. It's without error. It's without um, any kind of error. And it's what truth. So as we read this and we sink into this truth, let our hearts be open to hear it. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 21. All right. There's some reading some here right here. Okay. Uh, 21. I got to find it. Okay. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. And some of them have come from far away. And the disciples answered him, How can one feed these with the bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they sat them before the crowd and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that the, these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got on, into the boat with the disciples and went to the district of uh, the... Oh, man. I, I knew I was going to chop this word up. Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. Um, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test them, to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves uh, for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to them, 12. And the seven, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that as we uh, navigate this uh, chunk of text, Lord, that um, you would open our eyes, um, open our hearts. Um, many of us come in here with hardened hearts, calloused hearts, Lord God, and we need the physician to do surgery on those hearts, Lord. So Lord God, we ask that you would move in such a way uh, that your Holy Spirit would dwell in this place, soften our heart, break our heart to understand your truth, open our eyes to see your glory, Lord God. Help us feast upon this word this morning, Lord. Help me be able to present this text clearly, Lord God. Um, well, God, we say all these things in your mighty, wonderful name. Amen. You guys can see it. So I have a question. What builds trust? What builds trust in someone specifically? Let's define trust real quick, okay? Um, 
Trust, I looked it up, Google. <laughs> Trust is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. So if someone breaks trust, it's due to someone not holding up to what they said or their actions don't hold up to what they said. Which in return makes you and me skeptical of that person, right? It's pretty reasonable. But what's a skeptical attitude? A skeptical attitude is doubt as to the truth of something. So, trust is built on the reliability of something. Some would say that full trust is not really attainable. It doesn't exist. But I would argue because you, right now, fully trust in something. Do you know what that is? Your seat. You fully trust that the seat you're sitting on is reliable it won't break within you or break underneath you and it'll hold up your weight. You have a trust and it's actually a trust that you don't even think about. So I guess, what am I getting at? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust in Jesus' ability? Do you trust in Jesus' reliability? And do you trust in Jesus' strength? Do you trust what Jesus says through his scripture? Do you trust what he says he's going to do in the future? You see, when we see this trust demonstrated in our lives despite the circumstances around us there's a, a deep faith within him the question is what i'm getting at here is do you have a trust in jesus or are you skeptical of him and that's the big idea you see the reality is we all have a common similar answer here um, we are forgetful people we forget Jesus. We forget to trust in him. We look at to our own strength and our own ability. And in spite of seeing the Lord work in our lives, I mean, gosh, even within the church, a lot of you guys have been here from the beginning and we've seen God move in such extraordinary ways. But sometimes during circumstances, we just, we lose trust in what God's doing. See, Mark here understands something. He understands this tension we all experience as human beings. And he wants to expose and preach Jesus here. And he gives us this story, and he breaks it up into three parts. Uh, the first part is he wants to demonstrate that Jesus' character is trustworthy. And that's my first point. The character of Jesus um, in verses 8 through 10. And then Marx wants to show us um, the character of unbelief in verse 11 through 13. And then the third point, Mark calls us to trust in Jesus alone. Verses 14 through or 21. So let's just dive right in here. My first point, the character of Jesus, verses 8 through 10. So I'm going to summarize. There's a lot of text here, so I'm going to try to summarize and walk through this semi-fast. So hopefully you keep up, okay? So in the beginning of this passage, we're given a very familiar story. Jesus feeds the 4,000. And it may even seem like deja vu because it should. We literally went through Mark chapter 6 where it talks about Jesus feeding the 5,000. But these are very different stories. These are different circumstances, uh, not only in location, uh, but who Jesus is speaking to. Um, in Mark chapter 6, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which was more like fifteen to 20,000 if you include women and children, um, Jesus is mainly speaking to Jews. But here in our text in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Gentiles. So different people. 
Jesus is mainly, uh, oh, let me go back. Um, so what I want us to get and essentially see is that there's a repeat of this miracle. Right, Jesus does it again. He's amazing. He's going to repeat this miracle here. Uh, let me just recap a little bit from last week. We see Jesus uh, is still most likely in the region of uh, Decapolis, right? Is that the region? Uh, Decapolis. And once again, um, there's a major crowd that surrounds Jesus. Um, they've been listening to Jesus' uh, teachings. They probably witnessed some awesome miracles, um, healings. And it's been like three days. They've been sitting with Jesus, three days, without any uh, food and water. There's absolutely nothing to eat. And uh, they were in a desolate place, which is kind of really saying something because I start losing my train of thought after like a few hours of not eating, I become hangry. And these guys, uh, these men, women, and children are going literally 72 hours with nothing. So they're hungry. I don't know. They might be hangry. I think we all get hangry, right? <laughs> um, they have nothing. There's 4,000 men here. There's a ton of children. And again, um, this isn't actually uh, counting the women and children. So it says 4,000. We're probably talking about eight to 12,000 people here. And Jesus here sees this hunger. He sees this need. And he wants to meet this need with compassion. He wants to meet this need with compassion. Um, we see this in uh, verse 2. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. So I'm going to stop here. We're going to pause here. We're going to plant our feet here for a minute, okay? Because um, I really don't want us to gloss over this section. Um, let's just think about Jesus for a moment, okay? Uh, Jesus, God made flesh, holy, perfect, without sin, can relate with us in our needs and has compassion to rebellious sinners. Now, that statement should be pretty awe, right? Jesus, holy, has compassion on rebels. Why? You see, Jesus remembers and knows hunger and salvation better than probably most people. Do you remember Jesus' uh, temptation in the wilderness? He went 40 days. 40 days without food and water. He hungered. He was at the brink of starvation and thirst. So when we see that Jesus has compassion with these people, it's like a genuine, concerned parent wanting to take care of their child. And Jesus not only wants to meet their spiritual need here, he wants to meet their physical need here. Uh, Jesus even expressed this in verse three. And if I send them away hungry uh, to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come far uh, from far away. So notice Jesus isn't, he's not indifferent here to their circumstances. He sees their circumstances. He sees this struggle. He's not partial to them because they're non-Jews. He's like, ah, you're not worthy of my time. You're not right or clean enough. He's not partial to them. He's accepting of them. But we, we see this. This isn't something that we don't uh, know, Right? We've been walking through the book of Mark and we've been seeing this compassion of Jesus unlike anything I've ever seen. This deep compassion. We saw Jesus heal the leper. We saw Jesus uh, mend the paraplegic. We saw Jesus touch and heal what's deemed unclean, unworthy and makes them whole. We see Jesus just breaking all the boundaries to people that are truly undeserving. Remember, we're 
sinners. We're undeserving of the free grace that Jesus gives. Hard-headed, reckless, unworthy, unruly. But Jesus has compassion. He has compassion. He, remember in Mark chapter uh, 6 when he feeds the 5,000? Jesus says he has compassion because in Matthew 20, uh, verse 28, he says, uh, oop, I'm, I'm skipping a verse here, but he has compassion on those that are like sheep without a shepherd. He sees them and sees them wandering and he just has this compassion. Now I'm gonna go to Matthew 20, 28. It says, even the son of man uh, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We shouldn't question Jesus' compassion. I mean, if we look at the gospel accounts, if we look at Jesus' ministry, we would see clearly that it's based in a deep compassion for others. Period. Why? I had to ask the question, why does Jesus have this compassion? Especially with these people. They were rebellious. We, we know as we look at this that many people that approached Jesus here, they weren't looking to know Jesus. They wanted something from him. A lot of people, these 4,000 people, weren't looking for a relationship. They weren't looking to understand Jesus more. They're like, all right, Jesus, how can I get something from you? And then a lot of them end up rejecting Jesus. But Jesus still has compassion. And the reason why Jesus has compassion is because every single human being, believer or unbeliever, black, white, yellow, green, if you see a green person, run, because they're probably sick. <laughs> every single person deserves respect and compassion as image bearers of God. They, they deserve love and compassion. Can I remind us of something this morning? If we are followers of Christ, representatives of the kingdom of God, we are to show compassion and love to our fellow image bearers of God. You know what this means? This means we give compassion to the coworker that irritates you. This means you give compassion to the, the boss that lords his authority over you. This means you give compassion to the spouse that doesn't seem to quite understand your needs. This means you give compassion to the child that's rebellious. This means you give compassion to the extended family member. Here we go and start pushing some buttons here. Uh, the extended family member that maybe rejects you for your belief in Jesus, ostracizes you, casts you out. It means we give compassion to those that have a different political view than you. Sometimes I look at, I try not to, but sometimes I look at Facebook and I'm like, where's the compassion? I, I see brothers and sisters and I'm like, what are you doing? Our mark of Christianity is compassion and love for others. Where is it? Here's the reality. As hard as things get in our in our country, in our world, in our cities, however rebellious and destructive our culture goes, we are called and we are committed to the truth, right? We're committed to the truth of the Bible. We're committed to being bold with the gospel, but also to show love and compassion and proclaim that gospel message. You see, just like Christ shows compassion here, we 
show compassion. Jesus shows compassion on sinners. We ought to show compassion on sinners. Guess what? We're sinners. That's why we show compassion to others. And the reality is we're not perfect. I'm not, none of us are perfect in here. I have a hard time showing compassion sometimes to my children when they're like unruly, crazy, you know, getting up at one o'clock in the morning because they want a donut or something. It's like, oh, compassion, Lord. It's tough. <laughs> but what this does tell us is that we have got to be committed to compassion, committed to love and compassion for our fellow uh, image bearers of Jesus. So as we walk a little bit further in this text, we see that um, Jesus wants to meet this need. There's a physical need that Jesus wants to meet. He wants to meet it, but first he tests his disciples. And the, the test is, how are they going to respond to this current need? How are they going to respond to, there's 4,000 people that need some food. Will they trust in Jesus' provision, or are they going to trust in um, themselves? Let's look at verse 4. It says, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. Uh, in this desolate place, I was kind of, when I was reading this, I was like, "This is kind of astonishing to me," because if we look, like these are the same guys that were feeding the five thousand that Jesus gave them food to distribute. These are the same guys that were just here in this text that watched Jesus go. All right, yeah, you got a little bit of food. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna multiply this. But they don't see it. They're like, no, uh, you know, it's desolate, Jesus. What are we going to do? It's like, come on. Have we not seen, even through, through the book of Mark, how Jesus demonstrates his power and, and provision? And Jesus continues to test them in verse 5. He says, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. The question is, do you think Jesus doesn't know how much uh, food they have? Or how many fish? Jesus knows. He's fully aware of how, what they have. So what is Jesus getting out here? And I love what R.C. Sproul says. Um, I'm going to read this quote. He says this. Jesus wants these disciples here to look to their own resources so that they can see their utter inability to provide for the present need and to look to the one, Jesus, who is unrivaled in authority and power, and able to meet the need yet again. <laughs> I couldn't put it any better. So what does Jesus do? In 6 and 7, we see that Jesus there, he, he meets the needs, he sits them down, he demonstrates his power, his divinity, his authority. Oh, once again, he multiplies the fish, the bread, and he feeds everybody. says in verse 8, and they ate and were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over uh, seven baskets full and he sent them away. So in this first part, we see that Mark shows us Jesus's character is trustworthy. Why? We see that Jesus cares with compassion for sinners. Do we understand that? Do we understand that Jesus cares for you compassionately? Despite what you've done in your life, despite the sins that were committed, Jesus died for you, cares for you compassionately. And I don't know how many times I hear, well, I'll, you know, I'll go to church, so I gotta get, get a couple things right first, right? And it's like, no, you're missing the point. You're not seeing it. You don't see it clearly, brother or sister. Jesus cares for you compassionately and you can trust him. The second thing Mark displays is Jesus provides. 
regardless on what you think and how you can provide for yourself, every day you wake up is a provision from the Lord. The strength you have could be gone like that. I had a brother in um, our Sparks Church, the healthiest dude in the world. He had three kids. Um, he had an aneurysm and died overnight. Just like that. It's arrogant to think that you are the provider of your lives. When the air you breathe is a gift from the Lord. The strength you have is a gift for the Lord. Well, you know, I work. I work hard. I'm a worker. I go to a job. It's like the only reason you have strength is because he gave it to you to work. You are not the provider. He is. It's another character trait of Jesus that we can trust in. Despite our circumstances, despite our brokenness, he will provide for you. It may not look like the physical uh, manifestation of uh, having a, a Lexus car or uh, you know, winning the lottery. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. But he will give a life that's prosperous found in him, even despite our brokenness, even despite the suffering in this world. He will provide for you. And then thirdly, it says, Jesus satisfies. He, feel, he, he fills the hunger. And eight, it says, and they ate and were satisfied. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy the deepest hunger in your lives. Let's keep going. Um, point two, uh, the character of unbelief. The character of unbelief. So I'm just going to skim through this really quickly. Um, in verse nine, we're told the 4,008, uh, Jesus sends them away. Uh, Jesus gets up into a boat. Um, and they go travel uh, down to uh, the region or the district of Dalmanutha. I got it, Dalmanutha, uh, back into Jewish territory. And here, Jesus is greeted by the awesome Pharisees. Uh, shocking, right? Uh, at verse 11, it says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from God. Then uh, it wasn't just the Pharisees that were just like waiting to pounce on Jesus. Um, in the account of Mark 16, it says that the Sadducees were there as well to pick a fight with Jesus. Now you can look that up in Mark chapter 16. Um, both of these groups came together to, to brawl. Uh, I want to pinpoint some things here, okay? The Pharisees and the Sadducees don't like each other. They actually hate each other. The Pharisees were the gatekeepers of the law, focused more on rituals uh, and traditions. The Sadducees were the higher, in a sense, the higher class nobles. Um, they were rationalists and rejected any kind of thing that was supernatural at all. Uh, so they rejected angels, miracles. Um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they completely rejected that. Um, they denied it. So we have these two groups that hated each other, but uh, wouldn't come together for nothing. But they came together in their disgust and rejection of Jesus. And they began to argue with him. Show us a sign, Jesus. And their motive um, wasn't genuine search for understanding. It wasn't a genuine search for getting to know Jesus a little bit better. Um, this was an investigation to discredit Jesus as soon as Jesus arrived. And they go, show us a sign, Lord. Show us a sign. And it's like, how ironic, really, because Jesus literally just came from feeding twelve to 15,000 people. And they're like, hey, Jesus, show us a sign. And you know that they would have heard about these miracles or at least some of them they've even seen these miracles uh, 
I mean, Jesus' reputation is, is at this point in his ministry, it, he's pretty famous right now. So let me just, just to kind of pull this point out a, a little bit further, um, this is like asking Whitney Houston to prove to you that she could sing or uh, LeBron James to prove to you that he can play basketball. But the reality behind it is it doesn't matter to them, to these Pharisees, to these Sadducees. No demonstration of Jesus' power is, is going to prove to them that he is God. Nothing's going to persuade them. Uh, persuade them. They're hostile. They're completely hostile to Jesus. You see, there's a difference, you know, because I... A lot of times during communion, I'll be like, hey, if you're investigating Jesus, um, that's cool, right? It's good. Investigate who Jesus is. If it's at the point of knowing him deeper, you see, because there's a difference between uh, investigation and full-on rejection. You see, these guys, uh, these Pharisees, they didn't care. They didn't care what Jesus, whatever Jesus would have given them, they wouldn't have cared. It wouldn't have been enough evidence for them. You see, their motives were to discredit Jesus and it became hostile. Maybe you've met someone like this before. Have you ever met someone where you're like, yeah, I'll talk about God with you, but their only motive isn't to seek an understanding or even like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll think about that. But it's literally to discredit. It's like, I don't, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter the evidence you bring. They're just like, BS, 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 right? And their whole goal is hostility towards the gospel to disprove it. You see, the character of unbelief demands a sign, but when a sign is given, rejects it. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. And how does Jesus respond? He says this in verse 12. Uh, he sighs deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And, and he left them, got into the boat again, and he went on the other side. So this is a deep sigh. Jesus, uh, if we read this, it's a deep sigh in his spirit. Jesus is out of patience at this point. He's out of patience. His patience runs out. And I feel like there's a misunderstanding of Jesus' patience that I want to get at a little bit. We tend to think that we have all the time in the world, like I was saying earlier. And we also tend to apply uh, God's um, infinite being to his patience. Yes, God is a, a slow to anger, but his patience is not infinite. His patience is not infinite and it runs out. Here's the thing. We can't, as, as people of God, family, listen. We cannot assume we're right with God just because we come to church on Sunday. But we must actively pursue a relationship not only with God's people, but God. What does that look like? Reading your word, connecting with people. And guess, guess what? This word, the word of God is going to offend you because culture says one thing, God's word says another thing. It will be offensive to you because it's gonna rub you the wrong way. It's gonna say the way you're living is sinful and you need to turn and run back to God. And you're going to go, but I like the way I, I like this. It makes me feel good. But God's like, I've put the standard on what good and bad is. Who are you? 
We can't assume that we're just right with God. And we come to church and we go, uh, check. Yay, good. Now I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. Jesus has a response to this, okay? Let's, uh, in Matthew, in the account of Matthew 16, verse uh, 2 through 4, it says, uh, he says this. When it is even, you say, it'll be fair weather. For the sky is red, and in the morning it will be a stormy day. For the sky is red and threatening. Uh, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So what is Jesus saying here? Um, He's basically saying, you can kind of perceive by stepping outside and, and looking at the sky and go, it might rain today. You can interpret the weather somewhat, but you can't even interpret the times you're in. And, and what Jesus is saying is, I'm God standing in front of you, and you cannot even see it. Here's the thing. If you're in here right now and you're saying, uh, I wanna, I'm looking for proof. I'm looking proof for Jesus. I'm looking for proof of his existence. Saying uh, to yourself, I'll commit to Jesus um, if he demonstrates something to me, if he shows me something, if he shows me a miracle from heaven. Here's the thing. He's right in front of you. He has demonstrated and given evidence of his existence. Let's just ignore um, the historical evidence. Let's ignore the historical evidence and how the scriptures literally align with his history. Let's ignore the, the historical evidence of the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection for just a second. Let's ignore that we are the only creatures on this planet that has a conscience that can discern what good and evil is, what right and wrong is. God even says, I've written the law on your heart so we can discern these things. But let's just look at how God says there's evidence in creation, Right? In uh, Psalms 19, 1 through 4 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. Uh, they use no words. Uh, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voices goes out into all the, the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. The heavens declare the glory and the reality of uh, Beautiful designer and architect. Do we not, can we not just step back and see that, that we are a little blue dot floating on uh, in the empty universe with a bajillion uh, gas stars and planets that surround us, moving, all orchestrating, going around solar systems? Are we so arrogant to go, eh, that's a coincidence. It's too perfect. And then let's look um, what Romans, uh, Paul says in Romans one uh, twenty, uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We're without excuse, is what God is saying. His evidence, if he shows you any extra, that is grace. That is pure grace. Because here in this, in this text right here, he's saying he doesn't have to. It's already apparent. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees demand a sign and Jesus says, you'll get nothing more. Nothing more. 
And in the rejection of Jesus, um, Jesus says, I'll give you one sign. It'll be the sign of Jonah. And what this means is this is a sign of wrath. Because of their rejection, because of their disdain to Jesus, they're going to have to stand, stand on their own account. They've rejected Jesus. They rejected the word of God to live their own life, to live how they wanted to live. And it says, your sign is the sign of Jonah. You stand on your own. The judgment of the Lord is upon you. It doesn't have to be that way because Jesus says, I've freely given you an invitation. My hand has been out. Put your faith and trust in me. That judgment of the Lord doesn't have to be placed on you because our God has to deal with evil. He has to deal with sin. And Jesus said, but I took it. All you have to do is trust in me. I took it on the cross. Do you trust in Jesus this morning? Do you trust in Jesus? And this leads me to my final point here. Uh, a call to trust in Jesus. A call to trust in Jesus. So after Jesus rebukes the Pharisees pretty harshly, um, he hops in the boat and he leaves. <clears throat> in verse 14, we see that as soon as they get in the boat, the disciples are arguing. They're arguing with each other. Um, in the commotion of leaving uh, the 4,000, uh, feeding those people, um, they forgot to bring leftover food. They forgot to bring a lunch pail of the extra food. And they're arguing about they're hungry and there's no bread to eat. Just, can, you, can you believe this for a second? Here we go again. These disciples, they're literally, I, they're complaining to each other, where's the food? Oh man, and Jesus is sitting there. I, like, Seriously? It's almost ridiculous at this point. And what Jesus says, he says this, he, he gives them a warning here. In verse 15, he says, and he cautioned them saying, uh, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Let me just quickly dissect this, okay? Uh, leaven is yeast. I'm sure you know what yeast is, but you put leaven or yeast um, into dough and it makes it rise. And the account of uh, Matthew, we see that uh, Jesus is specifically talking to the, uh, the teachings, the teachings of the Pharisees and King Herod, if we look at Matthew 16. So what does this leaven and teachings, how do they correlate? How do they connect? Uh, basically, uh, what Jesus is saying is, don't listen to the unbelieving rhetoric. Uh, don't listen to their unbelief because if you do, it's like yeast in a bread and this unbelief will rise up within you. And this is a warning uh, that we all have to listen to, okay? It's important. When Jesus says a warning, we better open our ears and listen very carefully here. Jesus is giving us this major warning, um, especially in culture today that claims to know truth, yet culture lives in complete opposition to the word of God. And the question is, don't be influenced by culture's uh, unbelief, rejection of Jesus Christ. Don't listen. If you start listening, it will create an unbelief in your heart that can rise up. So the question here, what Jesus is getting at is, what are you being influenced by? Are you being influenced by Jesus? Are you being influenced by the word of God? Or are you being influenced by culture? What is culture are trying, this is what culture is trying to shove down our throats right now. It's you be you as long as you're happy, it's good. It's all about emotion. 
It's all about happy. If you're not happy, well, something's wrong. The word of God objects. It actually pushes back at that and says that, yeah, Jesus wants to have you have provisions in your life, uh, but Jesus' main goal is not to make you happy or meet some spectacular need that you want. His goal is to glorify himself, and he will use us to do that. It's it's an awesome, beautiful work that we get to partner with God to glorify him. So Jesus is saying, don't be influenced by the world around you. And uh, this completely goes over the disciples' heads. In verse 16, they don't understand. And they say, um, and they begin discussing with one another the fact that they don't have no bread. They They literally are like, whatever, Jesus. We don't got no bread. Crazy. And then it says in verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? What's Jesus saying? It's not about bread, guys. It's not about bread. It's about me. I'm what you're hungry for. I'm who you need. Trust in me alone. You don't need to look for any outside sources. They won't satisfy you. They'll leave you hungry and dry, begging for more. Don't believe the unbelieving culture and what they say about me. It will only stir up unbelief in you. So do you not understand yet that I am your Messiah? I am your Savior I have compassion on you. I will provide for you and I will satisfy you fully. Do you not understand? He goes on, are your hearts so hardened? I wonder if we need to hear this. In 18, have your, do you, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000? Here go, Jesus starts going in like, He's calling to remember what he's done in the past. It's a reminder to the disciples of his greatness. It's a reminder uh, to his disciples of his provision. It's a reminder that God is, Jesus is God. Remember how easy it is easy is it for us to forget about the goodness of God? I feel like I do daily. Daily forget about him. Daily I forget about his goodness, his provision, his compassion, his care. And here in this text, Jesus is saying, you got to look back and remember what I've done in your life. You see, these... uh, we need this, remember, the disciples need to remember. Um, and Jesus is doing this to strengthen their faith, to trust in him, to lean into him. I think a one big application here for us is to look back and remember what God has done to strengthen our strength or to strengthen our faith. What has he done personally in your life that you can look back on and go, wow, he is good. But just like these thick-headed disciples, we're thick-headed, right? You're like, I'm not not raising my head to that, or my hand to that. We're thick-headed. But God has compassion, and he's saying we could trust in him fully. We see throughout the the book of Mark that this compassion, it, it comes over onto us. And if we would only look to Jesus this morning with a trust, we would abandon the skepticism of him. I pray that as we walk into that, he would show us in such a way his provision 
and his care for us this morning. Look, trust, I'm going to finish it like with this, okay? Trust is easily broken. And in a culture that we're looking upon, we're like, gosh, everyone is untrustworthy, right? Everyone's at each other's throat. Everyone's battling each other. So sometimes we have a hard time going, I don't know if I could put trust in anything. But I promise you, if we look at Jesus' character, if we see the beauty of what he's done on the cross, I'm just telling you and I'm charging you that Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. Let's pray, church. Uh, Lord God, um, I thank you for this word, Lord. What a, what a thick word this is, Lord. Lord God, I pray that the Holy Spirit moves in our heart as we listen to this word, Lord, um, that you'd build uh, compassion uh, for your people, Lord, um, that we would have hearts of compassion, hearts of mission, Lord. Um, your compassion is what, what, what shows uh, what the gospel message looks like, what encourages us to go out uh, and look for those that are lost, that have no uh, hope, Lord, that we can point them to you who is the single source of hope and provision, Lord God. Um, Lord God, I just pray that you give us uh, a heart that softens with compassion for others but also an encouragement that we are well taken care of. We are well provided for and we are satisfied in you and we're satisfied in your word, Lord God. Lord God, we praise your name and we surrender ourselves to you, Lord God. We say all these things in your awesome, precious, and wonderful name. Amen.